Well, we are in the book of Ruth. We started it two weeks ago, and then last week we had our uh, little ice apocalypse, and so uh, we are uh, back at it again. And tonight we're going to get into the uh, verse by verse uh, study of the book of Ruth. Um, and really, what we're going to do, we're, we're going to be looking at one chapter uh, each night as we walk through the book of Ruth, and we'll understand it a little bit more. Uh, but Ruth is, you could look at it as, as sort of a play with four acts and four main characters. Uh, character number one is a prostitute. Character number two is her son. Uh, and by the time we meet him, he's uh, a wealthy, powerful, and single. And we can't help but wonder if his bachelorhood has some, anything to do with the fact that he's a son of a prostitute. Character number three is a foreign widow in a clannish culture. Everything about her is different. She speaks with an accent. She wears a, has a different kind of name. She eats different food. She has a different way about her. And, and her only friend is, is her mother-in-law, who happens also to be a widow, and and happens also to be character number four. She's a widow, older than the first widow, too old to have kids. And when her two sons died and her husband dies, she's left alone with only a foreigner as a friend. Four people, each rejected, each alone. Four frazzled strings in the bottom of a knitting basket, left untouched, awaiting the touch of the master weaver. But he, he doesn't discard them. He picks them up and weaves them together. The result, the unmarried son of the prostitute meets the foreign widow who, who left her homeland to accompany her mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law recognizes the bachelor as a relative of, and urges the daughter, daughter-in-law to make herself available. She does, the two marry, and the single bachelor has a wife. The young widow has a husband, and the older widow has a grandson. And we have the story of a providential romance. Such is the story of Ruth. You'll, you'll recognize her, the Ruth, as the younger widow. The older widow is Naomi. Bo- Boaz is the son of a prostitute. And the prostitute, well, she's actually not actually mentioned in this book, but she is mentioned in, in all places in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. So did you see that there? Salmon was the father of Boaz and Boaz's mother was Rahab. And who who would have thought, who would have thought that that a a harlot, a prostitute would be in Jesus's family tree? But you know what? These kind of things happen in the Bible. And aren't we glad they do? I mean, we're glad that they, aren't we glad that the master weaver has a place in his plan for each one of us, that he can, he can take each one of our lives, the thread that seems to be uh, so threadbare, and weave it together in his plan. You know, I, I like Warren Wiersbe's summary of the, fir- of the four chapters of Ruth. He, he describes the first chapter of Ruth, and this is how we're going to uh, use as our structure for this study. The first chapter of Ruth is the weeping chapter. That's Act 1. The second chapter of Ruth is the working chapter. That's act two. And then the third is the waiting chapter. And then the fourth is the wedding chapter. Or in other words, this is a story about the heart. A story first about broken hearts. Second about comforted hearts. Third about assured hearts. And fourth about joyful hearts. 
The, the first chapter of the book of Ruth is the chapter of the broken heart. It's, it's a weeping chapter. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It tells a story of sorrow. And in this chapter, Naomi weeps. Orpah, her daughter-in-law, weeps. Ruth, her other daughter-in-law, weeps. And then we come to chapter 2, the great working chapter, <clears throat> the chapter of the, of the comforted heart in which Ruth finds herself in the fields of Boaz. And, and there among the workers and, and among the people of Boaz, gleaning in, the, <clears throat> in his fields at the beginning of Bethlehem's harvest. And Ruth <clears throat> discovers that God has been going before her. And she finds that the God of the covenant is her great comforter and provider. And in the service of, of Boaz, Ruth experiences peace and contentment. And, and that chapter is, is full of spiritual significance and full of spiritual lessons and encouragement both for Ruth and for us. And, and in chapter 3, we find Ruth waiting. Waiting. And, and through waiting, she finds assurance that Boaz will serve her in, in his capacity as kinsman redeemer. And she has to be patient. Anybody else find patient like a bad word? It's certainly a bad word in our, our American culture of fast food and microwaves. And she has to be patient. She has to go to a certain place at a certain time. And she has to wait for Boaz. And then she has to wait on Boaz. And then she has to wait until Boaz can deal with and regulate all the affairs that concern her personally. Now that she's come among the, uh, the people of God. And it's a chapter full of submission in which Ruth bows before the Lord God and finds the assurance that her heart needs. And then finally, chapter four is the great wedding chapter in which hearts are filled with joy. The final consummation of God's purposes for Ruth, this Moabite woman, is realized when she is joined in marriage to Boaz and a child is born. And there in, in the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, there is great satisfaction. And so in the course of this narrative, we move from sorrow through service and submission to satisfaction. Well, tonight, act one, weeping, weeping. Let's begin, let's read together Ruth chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, I'm not going to get into it tonight, but those, the names in Ruth are very significant. In fact, uh, those two names of those boys, one was failing and the other one was sickly. How would you like to have that as your name growing up? Hey, sickly, come here. Uh, but, but it's also, I want to say this, this is a side note, both those names are also Moabite, so they took on Moabite names, which may have an indication as far as maybe where they stood in the relationship to Israel and to the God of Israel. Um, it goes on, it says, they were, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and he was left with her two sons. Excuse me, she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite woman, named, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. And they, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. With, with only 19 carefully chosen Hebrew words, the author here establishes the time and the circumstances of a Hebrew family's migration to a foreign land. The, the, the story, though, though written at a later time, the story itself opens during the days of the, that the judges ruled, it says. Now, 
That's significant. That tells us a, a lot. The, who were the judges? It's an unfortunate word that we use in our English because we think of a judge as somebody who sits on a bench and uh, adjudicates different cases, that sort of thing. But that's not really the role of a judge during this time period. They were, they were military leaders in times of crisis, generally speaking. But they also served as local rulers, administrating political and legal justice. But the time of the judges is significant because it was really for Israel, it was a, a period of lawlessness and chaos in Israel. And the, the book of Judges actually ends with this description, description. And this line is in there multiple times throughout the book of Judges. But it says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. These, these were times of great spiritual decline. During the times of the judges, men were self-sufficient. They acted as if they had no need of God. They were self-centered. Uh, they, they didn't care about God's will. They only wanted what they wanted. They were also self-serving. They didn't live for God, but they lived for themselves, which by the way, sounds very, very similar to a time that I know of in which we're living right now. I mean, if that's, if that's not our culture, that we are self-sufficient, self-centered, and self-serving. But that's the time that this story took place. And this is significant because this is a story that almost is a reflection of the opposite of all of those things. So it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of hope in the midst of all of this, this spiritual turmoil that's going on during the time of the judges because this is a story of faithfulness and, and self-sacrifice and we'll see that. So it's a beautiful story. But the story itself begins at a time of famine, which is a natural catastrophe that occurred often in Palestine. Uh, rainfall in that, that region uh, is never plentiful, but quite frequently, frequently was insufficient to provide adequately, adequately for basic crops. Now here's the thing. The famine could very well have been God's judgment on his sinning people. It's possible that the ravages of one of the invading armies that God used to discipline his people caused the, the famine. In fact, some commentators, and I actually think there's some real merit to this, they believe that this story, the story of Ruth, took place during the time of Gideon, who was one of the judges. And, and, and we, they say that because during the time of Gideon, there was a famine in the land, but it was caused by the Midianite invasion. Because if you go back and read the story of Gideon, what was happening is the Midianites would come and they would tear up all the crops and they, would, they wouldn't let anything grow. So they created a famine in Israel. And, uh, and I, I think one of the things that's in favor of this idea is the fact that we know from the story that there is a famine in Bethlehem but they, only, they moved to Moab and there's no famine in Moab and it's only about 50 miles or so away. So it'd be very strange to have a famine in one place and then 50 miles away not have famine there. So I think that gives us some credence that maybe this famine was, was caused by these invading armies of the, of the Midianites coming in. But but the lesson for us, one of the things we learn, one of the patterns we see in scriptures is that when we fail to walk with God, he often removes his blessings in order to get our attention. And we, you know what, we do that as parents, don't we? If I have a child who's not doing what I've told them to do, 
they lose privileges at a, at a very, you know, it, it may be the privilege of having a comfortable rear end, but they're going to lose a privilege somewhere. You know what I'm saying? But, and, and so, uh, and we do that to get their attention to help them understand their consequences for actions. And, and we, we know that, that God does this. Listen to what it says. I'm going to read you some of the passages from Deuteronomy. It says, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Then same chapter, verses 23 and 24, the sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. That's talking about no rain. It's talking about the crops are not going to come up. And this is, that's the description there. Uh, verse 24, the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you're, you, will you are destroyed. And then verses 38 and 40, the same chapter. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. So he's saying, he's talking about famine that will come because of disobedience. He's going to use this not to try to destroy them, but to get their attention to bring them to a place of repentance. Because it's been my experience, at least for me personally, um, I often don't come to a, an attitude of repentance until it hurts enough. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, verse 39, you will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees, th trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You see, and here's what we know. God told the Israelites that, that there were, he promised that there would always be plenty in the land as long as Israel was obedient. He promised he would provide, he would take care of them. And the famine... Whether it was, uh, you know, just the fact that rain stopped falling and it created a famine, or if it was because of invading armies that created the famine, either way, it was still the result of the disobedience of God, God's people. And, and, and really, that was also foretold in Second Chronicles when, when Solomon dedicated the, the temple and, and, the, and the presence of God filled the place and the glory of God came and, and he told them about, he, he, he said, he told Solomon, he said, listen, these people are going to turn their back on me. They're going, to, they're going to be some times when this nation is going to walk in sin. They're going to forsake me. But then he said in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 7, he said, even after telling him these things, he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That is very specifically applying to these passages concerning famine and, and drought and that sort of thing. And God is saying, listen, when you find that you are experiencing these hardships because of your disobedience, if you will repent, I will, I will heal the land and I will re reverse the issues that you're dealing with. Now, I want to I make that an application here to our lives because... When we talk about our nation, I don't think anybody would argue with me that America is in a spiritual famine. We are in a very dire situation, spiritually speaking, as a nation. As a nation, we have, in general, turned our backs upon God. We are, we are, we are walking through these things. And, and there are many, many in the church, many people who are praying for a great revival, and they're saying, oh God, we need a, a, a new awakening 
a fresh awakening among the people of, of the land. But I want you to hear me when I say this, because I think this is the, one of the principles we get right here in this passage of Scripture. I want you to understand that I believe with my whole heart that the lack of revival in America is the result of God's people not meeting his conditions for revival. It's, it, it, notice that when God said that in Corinthians, excuse me, in Chronicles, God did not command the, the drunkard to sober up and then he would heal the land. He didn't command the harlot to clean up and then he would heal the land. He didn't command the bars to close up and then he would heal the land. He commanded believers to repent and confess up. Uh, God, God does not send revival based upon the condition of the land, but based on the condition of his people. Are they humbling themselves before God? Are they seeking his face, as it says there in 2 Chronicles 7, 14? Are they repenting before God, not only for their own sins, but also embracing, as Nehemiah did in the early chapters of the, of the, of the book of Nehemiah, in, uh, taking the sins of the nation and saying, God, we have sinned against you. Well, the famine that, that had touched the lives of Elimelech's family was... I believe was part of God's judgment upon the land because they had forsaken fellowship with their God. But whatever the case, the fact remains that here at Bethlehem, which again, the names are important in the book of Ruth. Anybody know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. That's exactly what it is. How ironic that there's no food in the house of bread. And, and, uh, and so whatever the cause, the fact remains that at Bethlehem, the house of bread, the supply had stopped and a, and a man made the difficult decision to take his wife and two sons off to live as resident aliens in the land of Moab. So the, the severity of the famine caused Elimelech and his family to leave their home in Bethlehem of Judea and, and journey to Moab in the expectation of a better, fuller life. To hopefully not die. Now, we know that they never intended it to be a permanent move to Moab because the, the, the Hebrew word used here, uh, and, and NIV translates it like, like this, but some translations might say they sojourned, but it literally means to live there for a while. And it kind of carries with it the status of a resident alien that usually included protection under the laws of the host land. So he took his wife and his two sons and they went there. They decided they'd go there for a little while. Uh, now, it's interesting, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but they went there for a little while. The next thing you knew, it was they died there 10 years later. You know, it's really easy to go away from the place that God has for you and say, I'm just going to dabble. I'm just going to go for a minute. And then you end up getting lost and don't, don't find your way back. But, but Elimelech, he took his wife and his two sons to Moab. Now, his name... It's also significant. His name means my God is king. That's a, that's a pretty cool name. My God is king. But I find it ironic that Elimelech decided not to trust the Lord in Bethlehem, but he took matters into his own hands by moving to Moab. How many times can I relate to Elimelech there that instead of trusting God where he's put me, that I begin to try to take things into my own hands and, in, and then, you know, uh, I, and I use, here's the word, I manipulate, which is the, the, the Latin root from that. We, it's the, what, we, what the Spanish people get the word for hands. Anybody know what the Spanish word for hands is? 
manos. And it's the same root, manipulation. I gave it, somebody was, somebody was talking about Spanish class when we were di- over dinner. So I'm just giving you a little, little preview there and a little help you out there. But, but, uh, but I, how many times in my life have I done that? How many times in your life have you done that? Where you, where you didn't just wait patiently and let God do whatever he wanted to do. And so Ma- Matthew Henry said, it is evidence of a discontented, distrustful, unstable spirit to be weary of the place in which God has set us and to be leaving it immediately whenever we meet any uneasiness or inconvenience in it. Was Elimelech right or wrong to go to Moab? I don't know. The biblical text really doesn't uh, uh, encourage us to be dogmatic and say he was definitely right or definitely wrong. But certainly I would say the decision was questionable. I mean, why go off to a country and a people whose God, whose name, their God was called Shemosh, and and their worship demanded human sacrifice. Why go there? Why join a nation whose king, whose name was Eglon, had pressed Israel into servitude for 18 years? That's in Judges 3.14. Now at the time Elimelech went uh, to Moab, it seems that Israel and Moab must have been on friendly terms. And and clearly we know from the text that Elimelech had no intention of staying there forever. It was just for a while during the famine. But Although they, they could not be Moabite citizens, they, they'd be able to make a living. They, they'd have, food would be more than plentiful and no one would stop them from practicing their religion because of the, so it was a syncretistic society and it just seemed like a pretty good deal to them. But we have no record anywhere. We're not told of any time that Elimelech ever asked God, is this, is what, I sh- is this what I should do? Well, while they're there, Naomi's sons married Moabite women named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah and Ruth. And uh, ultimately we see that, the, that the, ap- the actual goal of the journey was a failure. Because why did they go to Moab? So they wouldn't die. And what happened in Moab? They died. All three men in the family died in Moab. So whatever the reasons for Elimelech's decision, Naomi now is left widowed and childless without sons or grandsons to continue the family line, which in their culture particularly was, it was a situation of great deprivation and horrible despair. All this has happened. Not only did she lose their sons and her husband, but it happened in a foreign land, far away from the support of anyone who spoke her language or worshipped her God. For a woman to, be, woman to be left without her husband and her sons was serious enough in, in her own community, but in another, in another land, she would be in absolutely desperate straits. So picture Naomi standing there, next to the third grave. See her sad and tortured face. Are, are there tears or, or is she now so emotionally exhausted by sorrow that she is unable to find relief in tears, a, a mourner who cannot weep? You know, there are many, many people in today's world and really in, at any time, not just in today's world, but they'll identify only too readily with Naomi's experience. Some have gone through and, and uh, just similar traumatic times of bereavement. 
Others will have made life decisions that they now regret and feel very bitter about. You know, the job move that actually ended up being, that led to being laid off or, or the marriage that broke up almost from the beginning or the disappointment of children who have forsaken their parents' faith and are showing, sowing their wild oats. And inevitably in those times, people are asking questions, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? But it's often, very often followed by the question, why did God let this happen to me? But here's, here's the beauty of the book of Ruth. Thankfully, the book of Ruth does not end in the first chapter, in those first few verses. Because here's the reality. Even if Elimelech made a mistake by moving his family, even if he was outside of the will of God and moving his family, even if that ended up bringing this upon his family, the story of Ruth illustrates that God's grace covers even our mistakes. Because what happened? God used this whole situation, this whole scenario to bring Ruth into the picture. He, he, and Ruth, as we know, became a direct ancestor of King, Je King David and also of Jesus. And, 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 and even out of this tragedy, even in the midst of all of the sorrow, even in the, in the middle of all of the brokenness of this first chapter, we know, thankfully, because we've read the end of the story, we know that God was, was working to bring good in this whole situation. He was working to bring healing. He was working to, to bring about wholeness in, in their lives. Here's the, here's the problem for us. We can't read the last chapter of our lives. And because of that, it's very easy for us to get discouraged when we're just in chapter one. When we're in the weeping chapter, it's easy for us to, to throw our hands up in the air and say, I don't know, I don't know why, I don't, why, God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? But we have to remember that even if we can't see it, there's more to be written for our story. And even if my story ends there in chapter one on this earth, my story does not end when my life ends on this earth. There's good coming, even in the midst of tragedy. Well, let's look at Naomi's return to Judah, verses 6 through 15. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May, your, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of, your, uh, of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come home with me? Am I, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. 
Look, said Naomi, your, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. We'll stop there. So Naomi, after all this has happened, we're at least 10 years down the road. Naomi heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. The famine was over. The famine was over, and, and so she made preparations for returning to Judah, which only makes sense because even if the famine wasn't over, it, it, as I said, it's, it's desperate enough for a widow with no, no sons in their home, own homeland, but she's living in a foreign country. She, so it only makes sense she's, she's going to head back home at this situation. So God comes to the aid of his people by providing food, and, 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 and that situation, the famine having changed, the widowed Naomi decides to go back empty to the house of bread where she really belongs. Now, as I said, it's really a, a common sense response to the outward circumstances. But, but here's the thing. Spiritually, it's really a move toward the Lord. It's a move back toward the, 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 the people of Israel, the, the, pe the people of God. It's a move back toward her, 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 her uh, place of worship. It's a move back toward, God, toward the Lord and What's happening is that God is putting the pieces together for, for Naomi, although at this stage she has no conscious awareness of that at all. She has no idea what's to come. In fact, she's trying to send Ruth and Orpah back to their people, but she has, so she has no idea all of the events that are going to unfold when she gets back to, the, to Bethlehem. She has no idea, but she just, she just simply does what seems right. This is an interesting feature of the theology of the book. This, there is not the faintest hint that the total sovereignty being exercised by the Lord in any way limits the freedom of activity of the people involved. As the book proceeds, we see the detailed and delicate way in which God works all of their actions and all of the things they do together into His plan. You know, that's a beautiful thing. You think about the plan of God and you think about the freedom that people have to choose. That's amazing to me. And it goes beyond way beyond our intellect that we have to understand that God's plan can take into account every decision you or I make because he already knows about those decisions. So the more the story of Ruth seems to hide the hand of God, the more it actually affirms his sovereignty. The, the great theological insight revealed here is that God does not act intermittently, but continuously. See, with, with this story, it appears as if he sort of just steps into the scene at, at, in, at certain given key moments. But he's actually and, and actively there every moment, albeit hidden from human eyes. They couldn't see it. Naomi couldn't see it. Ruth couldn't see it. But he was there. Now, when we talk about the book of Ruth, return is a, is a key word in the book of Ruth. Uh, and this idea of returning to Judah, to Bethlehem, is really an, a, a, an excellent illustration of repentance. Because what she did, Naomi reversed the direction she and her husband had taken. Because repentance, we get this idea in modern culture. We think repentance means that we just say we're sorry, we boo-hoo, and we say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. That's not repentance. That's, that may be asking forgiveness, but that's not repentance. 
Because repentance is literally a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So it means that I'm going one direction and I'm pursuing my sin and I'm doing whatever I want to do. Repentance is not just saying, oh, I'm sorry for doing this and then just keep doing whatever I want to do. Repentance means I turn my back on that, change my mind on it, about it and say, that is, that is wrong, that is sinful. And I, and I turn around and go the other direction. And that's really why this is such a great illustration of repentance because Naomi and Elimelech and the two sons had gone one direction and now she's turned around and she's going to go back the direction she needs to be. She turned away from Moab. She turned away from any of the errors of the past. She turns her back on the tragic graves of her loved ones and she heads back to Judah, her homeland. Now, Orpah and Ruth, now we, we may not understand this family structure in our modern world the same, but but there, was, there were very strong family ties. And more than that, there was a, um, with, with uh, daughters-in-law, for example, these two, they would feel a very strong obligation to make sure that Ruth was taken care of. And, and so Orpah and Ruth did not question their duty to accompany their mother-in-law, even though, even though that meant leaving their own homeland. Both of them. You know, some, we, we give Ruth a lot of credit, but I think we should give Orpah some credit here, at least in the beginning, because she, she started the journey. She was going to go. In fact, she, she said, no, I'm going to go with you when, when she was told, go back home. But, but apparently the group hadn't traveled very far on the road to Judah when Naomi probably was thinking about what's going to happen when she gets back to Judah. She begins to realize the difficulties that are going to face her daughters-in-law. She began to think about what they were going to face, not just her, but, and, and so she began to think about that and she, and she realized those obstacles and the difficulties that were coming. So she released them from all obligations to her by encouraging them to return, specifically it says, to their mother's home. Now that's really interesting because typically when you think about, when the Bible talks about a place of protection, it refers to the father's house, not the mother's. And, but this phrase in, in the mother's house, in, in its other appearances in the Old Testament, the mother's house has to do, it speaks more of preparations for marriage. So Naomi is already thinking, you're young enough to get married again. Go back to your mother's house. She'll help you find another wife. You, you, can, you can have a life there. You can have children. You don't have to be stuck in this destitute situation in which I find myself. And, and, and so Naomi's encouragement of the, for the girls to return to the mother's home, she's not really talking about a, finding a place of legal protection, that sort of thing, but she's really encouraging them to find a place, a, a new family situation, that there's hope for them. And, and her parting wish was that the Lord would show kindness to her daughters-in-law as, as they had shown kindness to her and to her sons. And, and, uh, and, and she expressed the hope that her daughters-in-law would find rest in the home of another husband. Now, we think of rest as meaning that we, we just don't work. But that's not the idea of rest here in Scripture. It's really, rest refers to a sense of security. When you feel secure, secure then, you, then your mind and your spirit is at rest. That's the idea behind it. And so after telling these things, Naomi kiss them as a, uh, in a parting gesture, and they all just begin to weep loudly. Catch the emotion of this moment. These three women on the road, they've lost 
the, the men that they love. Naomi's lost her sons, not just her, her husband. And they're all there and they're together. And Naomi is saying, listen, it's, it's too late for me, but there's hope for you. Go back home. And she kisses them goodbye. And they all just break down sobbing. Well, both Ruth and Orpah refused to be separated from Naomi and they pledged themselves to return to Judah with her. And their, their devotion, while remarkable in the light of what, what they were giving up to return to Naomi, was at the same time very high commendation of Naomi's character. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a more minute. But, but think about how much they must love this woman because they were willing to abandon their families, their friends, their homeland, their, their deities, all their prospects for remarriage. They're willing to leave it all behind because, because they love this woman. Well, Naomi continued to argue her case. They said, no, we're going to go with you. She continues to argue her case and, and, and tries to show her daughters-in-law the, the irrationality of the determination that they have to, to remain with her. Uh, and now verse 11, we read it, it assumes the law of leveret marriage and it cannot be understood apart from that. If you, we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that. We talked about it more in the introduction. So you can go back to our, on our website, restorationlifechurch.tv, and you can, you can watch the video there where we talk more about it. But the Leveret Law, just in brief, and you can find it also Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, it provides uh, for the marriage of a childless widow to a brother-in-law. Now that seems weird to us. It's so foreign to us. And, but but that, that child, the, the man who died without any heirs, uh, it, was, uh, it was all about, and you can go back and, and watch the video about this, but it was all about preserving the family, preserving the clan, preserving the inheritance. Um, and so that's why they did this thing. But if, if Orpah and Ruth went with Naomi as, as foreigners, there'd be little to no hope for them uh, of, of, for remarriage and for homes of their own. And Naomi just makes a point. He said, listen, you know, even if I got pregnant right now, right tonight, um, and I had two sons who would be the younger sons of Malone and Killian, uh, yeah, they would be obligated to marry the widowed sisters-in-law according to Leverett Law, but, but she's saying, you, don't, we don't, you can't wait for that. If they were born nine months from now, it's, it's going to be too late for you. So she's really trying to push them and say, go back home, go back home. But it's, but it's not trying to be harsh. And is, in fact, it's very selfless of her. She's trying to be considerate because, and even in her desperate situation, Naomi ha still had a very selfless attitude. Although she had decided to return to Israel, she encouraged Ruth and Orpah, Orpah to stay in Moab, to start their lives over, even though this would mean even more hardship for her. And as, as Naomi discovered, when you act selflessly, and this is a great thing for us to learn, when you act selflessly, others are inspired and encouraged to follow your example. So having sized up the situation, Naomi concluded that her lot was far more bitter than that of Orpah and, and Ruth. While it was true that they all had lost their husbands, but Naomi had lost not only her husbands, but also her sons. You add to that the fact that Orpah and Ruth were young enough to remarry and still have children. Naomi 
she could never bear another child to carry on the family legacy. That was gone. The hope for that was gone for her. But as she said in here, the true bitterness of Naomi's lot and what really, really, really uh, uh, got to her was that she believed the Lord was punishing her. Now, while it's not right to blame God for our own misfortunes, nevertheless, the statement by Naomi shows that she believed that God was active in her life and that he is sovereign. Even though she hasn't even been living in Israel, we don't know anything about how she's been worshiping or anything, but she definitely sees and believes that God's hand is on her life, although, albeit for in this situation, she believes God's hand is not a pleasant situation for her. Well, the daughters wept again in, in Orpah. She actually showed her love of Naomi by obeying her wishes, and she left. But in contrast, we're told that Ruth clung to her. And the word that's translated clung is, it is normally used to describe the relationship between a man and a woman. When, a, when a, a man gets married, he's to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. That's that, that picture there. And, and what this shows us is just the, the, the real closeness of the relationship that Ruth had with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she was willing to leave everything in order to, in order to cling to Naomi, no matter what it cost her through good or bad. And one final time, Naomi encourages Ruth to follow the example of Orpah and go back to her own land, her own people, her own gods. And then comes Ruth's classic response, which we have heard quoted in, in, in thousands of weddings over the centuries, which I find personally very ironic, because if we want to be biblical, if you want to do it, be biblical about it, when you have a wedding and you want to quote this, the bride should be quoting it to her future mother-in-law. <laughs> so, so, so it kind of changes the whole picture, doesn't it? A little, little funny to me, but anyway, look at verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth's commitment to go wherever Naomi went was a commitment to share her home and to share her circumstances, whatever they might be. She doesn't know how bad it's going to get. She doesn't know how, how rough things are going to be back in Bethlehem. But she says, listen, I'm going with you. And I'm going to be right there. If we die of starvation, I'm dying with you. And they'll bury me right next to you. Because I'm not going anywhere. This, listen, this was a renunciation by Ruth of her people and her gods. And it was complete and total. The, the, the language here is very terse. It says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. And nothing but death would separate Ruth from Naomi. She, she swore a solemn curse on herself if she did not keep her promise. Now, after hearing this, Naomi was finally speechless. And she realized she was not going to talk Ruth out of this. She had even made this vow in there saying, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And, and so uh, she just spoke no more about it. 
And you know, I mentioned earlier about Naomi's character and the fact that there was something about her that caused Ruth to love her so deeply. And, and you know, Ruth's unselfish devotion has often been praised, and I think justly so. That's the correct thing to do. However, Naomi's character in life during her years in Moab, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we can overlook those. We don't know the details, but there was something about her life, something about her experience, even walking through these dark, shadowy times that somehow appealed to Ruth and made her fall in love with Naomi. Her, her consistent living must have so impressed her daughter-in-law to cause her to abandon her homeland and to leave all of her gods behind and say, no, no, I see something different in you. There's something about your God. I'm not going to follow my gods, my old ways anymore. I want to go with you. You know, I, I found, and I think this is indicative of Naomi's experience, but I've seen it in our lives as well. The Lord often uses the experiences of, experiences of his people, especially in times of hardship and sorrow. He uses those times in pointing other people to himself. And that's why it's so important that we respond to difficulty and hardship and brokenheartedness and sorrow and what, whatever in a way that honors God not in a way that's self-serving. Here in this passage, that what's happening is the Lord is bringing Ruth to faith in the God of Israel using Naomi's experience of, of grace through affliction as, as a persuasive testimony. You know, God can use the difficult times in our lives to impact the lives of people around us. They're, they're, you never know who is watching you. I'm here to tell you, you never know who's watching you, especially during heartbreaking moments of life. When you get really bad news, when the doctor gives you a bad report, when, when, when your spouse says, I, I don't want to be married anymore, whatever it might be, or, 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 or you have someone you love pass away that you've loved very, very deeply. During those times, there are people with, with whom you've had conversations about your relationship with Christ, and they're watching and they want to see how you deal with that because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't, they don't know how to handle those moments because they don't have an anchor. They don't have anyone to turn to. They're on their own just to try to feel the way through the darkness. And they're watching you. And as you respond to those moments in ways that honor God, in ways that where you say, I'm not, not trying to hide the pain, not trying to say that you pretend like it doesn't hurt, but as they see you weeping and they begin to realize, wait, they grieve, but they grieve differently than we do. They grieve as people who still have hope and they begin to see there's something different in you as you walk through those valleys because other people have their pity parties. Other people, you know, just blame everybody else. Other people get angry, but there's something about you and, and your relationship with Jesus that you... You're dealing with it differently. I want to know. I want to know about this Jesus you serve. And as people see your faith in God in spite of the circumstances of life, God can use that to draw people to himself. And here's what I know. A God who makes himself known in the valley of the shadow of death can be trusted in more comfortable days as well. Let's look at the arrival of Naomi and Ruth in Bethlehem. Verse 19, so the 
two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town, excuse me, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the woman, the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Which, interesting uh, that it ends on the beginning of something else. But we'll get to that in a moment. You know, we're not told anything about the events on the road back to Bethlehem. But um, we see all throughout the book of Ruth, God's providential care that is implied even when it's not specifically uh, attributed to him. Because here, this, they have this journey back to Bethlehem. Well, considering that thieves frequently lurked along the roads during those days, it must have been an, a very, very dangerous trip for two unaccompanied women. And so... It's implied already here that God is taking care of them. God is watching over them. And his care is seen in the fact that they actually arrive in Bethlehem alive and intact. So we already see the care of God and the fact that they arrive. And then when they arrive, Bethlehem, the city, has quite the reaction to Naomi coming home. The the phrase that says the whole town was stirred because of them. Uh, Here's a way you could translate that and put it into modern language. You could say the town buzzed with the news of their arrival. And everybody was talking about it. The the commotion caused by Naomi's return may have been from the joy of seeing her appearance. I mean, no doubt Naomi's friends and relatives had, had heard of the grief that she had experienced since she and her husband had left town and headed to Moab more than a decade ago. Uh, so, so one can imagine their excitement, you know, when she just suddenly shows up unannounced. Naomi's back? Is that really Naomi? Or maybe it may describe the women's shocked whispering about Naomi's abject changed appearance. Maybe she grew older beyond her years walking through the grief and the sorrow that she did. The years of grief and deprivation would have surely taken their toll on Naomi's appearance. And and the the one who had left Bethlehem as Naomi, which, by the way, Naomi means the pleasant one. She was a robust woman in her prime. Now she returns as a worn down and and impoverished old woman. And that fact is not lost to Naomi at all. Overhearing the question that is circulating among the women, she she interrupts the, the buzz, so to speak, with a, with a very pointed reply and giving public vent to, to her years of frustration and pain, she demands a new name and she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me the pleasant one. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She may have left Bethlehem as Naomi, but she returned as a different person. And from now on, she says, you must call me Mara, a der- derivative of the word that means to be bitter. Her reason for changing her name was that God made her life very bitter. And Naomi's concept of the sovereignty of God caused her to attribute even the ill fortune to him, not not to chance, not to other gods, 
but that he was at work in her life. She, she, she did not, I don't believe she meant it as an accusation against God, but as an acknowledgement that he's in control of all things. Well, Naomi continues describing her life to them. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I, f- I find that interesting. Because she didn't say the Lord sent me away full and the Lord brought me back. She said, I went away full. I did it. It was my choice. But the Lord brought me back empty. I find significance in that. She, she does not specifically accuse the Lord of emptying her life in that moment, but she acknowledges that He brought her back to Bethlehem. She says, Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And Naomi assisted that she should not be called pleasant since the Lord Himself had afflicted her. Now here's, here's the meaning behind that that I think that we miss in the English translation because the word translated affliction literally means testified against. She believed that God was showing His displeasure with her for whatever reason by the misfortunes that she had experienced. So Naomi... Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure she shared the Israelite belief that God blessed the righteous and he brought calamity on the unrighteous. So she may not even know, may not even be aware of anything specifically that she did, but she, if she has that mindset, if I'm suffering calamity, then it must be because I've done something unrighteous. That's the way the Jewish mind thought during those days. And her, her point is this, she's saying, if God himself has testified against me, I don't know, you can't tell you what I did wrong, but if God has testified against me through these calamities that I've experienced, if he's testified against me and brought judgment upon me, then why should I be known as pleasant? Call me bitter. Not because she was necessarily saying that she is a bitter person, but she's saying my life has become bitter. And the verse 22 summarizes the preceding events of the first chapter with with one little additional bit of information that I mentioned because it says that the two women return in the beginning of the season of barley harvest. And, And I think that's a beautiful transition because a time of weeping was actually leading to a new beginning of something else. They came back home to Bethlehem. Naomi thought everything was over. But it wasn't over. It was really the beginning of the barley harvest. It was the beginning. I believe the writer is foreshadowing that it's the beginning of a new harvest in Naomi and Ruth's life. It was the beginning of new things that God was going to be doing. And now, now when that is, according to the oldest known calendar in Palestine, the barley harvest was the eighth month of the agriculture calendar, which would be late April or early May to us. And the wheat harvest would follow a few weeks later. But But that verse really prepares the reader for the events that follow in the harvest field in chapter 2. And I believe it paints a picture for us that even in the midst of weeping, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of brokenheartedness, that there's always a a door, an opportunity for God to be able to step in and be able to bring about something new. That, that, That this is not the end. And, and, and listen, even if the story ended for Ruth and Naomi, there, if they had died when they got back to Bethlehem, if the story ends for us, as I said earlier, in the midst of my sorrow and pain, it's still the beginning of something new when I, when I, as I walk with him in heaven, as I 
as I leave this life, that Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So even that is the beginning of something new. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that's what I'm going to close with tonight. I think we can look at that and we can say, you know what, no matter what happens in life, no matter what I'm going through, and maybe I hope that you're going through a great season of life. But if you're not, if you're walking through something very difficult, I, I think what we can do is we can hang our hats on this. We can put our trust in God. We can trust in his grace. We can trust in his sovereignty. And we can say, listen, even though I don't get it, I know that I'm, I'm right with God. I'm walking with him. I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be. Therefore, I can trust him that he's got something new that he's going to do. He's going to bring good of this. As it says in Romans, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who, who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that means in the midst of those things, I can still have hope. I can still have peace. I can still have rest. Remember what rest is? It's, it's, it's a rest in my mind, rest in my, in my spirit, knowing that I don't have to worry about anything. Because God is the God of the beginning of the harvest. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for all of the beauty that's in this story of the book of Ruth. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as if, if there's anybody that's in that time of weeping, that you'd help us to remember that the fourth chapter of Ruth takes us to the, a time of wedding, that beautiful, great wedding. And one day, Lord, even when we walk through the times of weeping on this earth, the good news is that, first of all, it's not going to last forever on this earth, but we certainly know that there is a greater joy coming. And we can place our hope and our trust in you, knowing that regardless of what we may be experiencing right now, you're the God of the beginning of the barley harvest. You're doing something new. There's something more to come. And you're going to use us in new ways. And even as we walk through these valleys, you're using us and you're showing your grace to the people around us. And God, for that, we give you all glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.